Greetings. This is Larry D. Giles again. Um, it's February 10th, 2021. A nice laid-back uh, Wednesday afternoon when we're expecting another little snowstorm tonight, I believe. Anyway, I'm going to attempt to read another chapter from the book I'm currently working on. I hope it, the book has not completely tired you out yet. <laughs> if it is, I'm sure you're going on to something else, which is your prerogative, of course. Um, this piece is kind of different in that with some of the chapters, uh, it does take one a few days sometimes to put a chapter together because... You're pulling a lot of uh, information together into one coherent package, and that's not necessarily easy. You uh, want to be truthful, but at the same time, you have to add some surprises to keep the reader interested. So that takes a little bit of crafting. Anyway, what I'm getting at is this piece... Uh, didn't take me a long time to write, about three hours. Of course, I've been um, fooling around with it a little bit since then. Um, the piece focuses again on my grandfather. I know you're probably tired of hearing about him, but I am putting together a book which has um, a storyline that continues from page to page. And so in a book, they are characters. They are um, joys and sorrows and issues that are repeated and refrained. So that's how it goes. Um, when I was a kid, my grandfather always said this word that I didn't know the meaning of. So that becomes um, the heart of this piece. The word was uh, Pharisee. He was constantly talking about them. So the word became a symbol for me of his um, strong sense of inquiry, which he uh, gave to me as a legacy. Um, this also involves uh, a need for constant growth and ongoing education. The Pharisee. When I was a kid, I think my grandfather may have been the most educated person I knew. Other than the few teachers I began to have around age five, he still may have remained the most informed after I met them. With only an eighth grade education in a one-room school before 1910, he could tell me much more than most of them. One of my two uncles who lived with him at that time had been the school valedictorian, but I didn't necessarily see him as educated. For one, his head was constantly hidden in a Louis L'Amour Weston, but he was not particularly interested in sharing what he read or talking about it. Well, maybe sometimes, if he were in a good mood. He took a story with him, even to the privy in the ice cold, 
unlike my grandfather, however, who dreamed at the end of every row of beans. I'm not sure my uncle, who liked reading, was much for setting goals. Maybe at first, but also somewhere along the road where sto stagecoach slowed, he may have become somewhat comfortable with stopping and spending the night in an untoward saloon. The smart aunt was similar, though not ever with L'Amour, and maybe not so much with stopping along nights. Loving, yes, I would say. But history books and true confessions, when there were any, were her own private journey. Despite the common fragmentation and varied levels of engagement with books in our household, Dagwood entertained each of us, except the elder aunt who was habitually at work. So did Prince Valiant and Beetle Bailey with his black pipe. Even with Dagwood's rather befuddling head of yellow hair, and that no one in any book or picture looked like any of us, my grandfather especially loved the first. A self-made hero, though someone must have inspired him at least a little. The uncle who had moved to California by way of the military was somewhat abstrusely wise about the world, and we all knew it. A feature that was both surprising and bewildering, like hieroglyphics in a heart on a tree, his insistence that his home family received at least the Sunday newspaper and before that electricity and later the telephone and TV was uncompromised, and his letters and beautiful blue cursive were incessant, and not just to his mother and father, but often letters to everyone where he could tell where you could tell he loved the ongoing process of learning and growing. Larry, he had slipped a note inside grandmother's letter. How is school going? Do you like your teachers? And what have you been doing? He often spoke highly of school and education, though I think he had only finished about the eighth grade. My father, had lived briefly in the grasslands of Wanju, Korea. But when he came home, education and newspapers may have remained as far from his fingers as the grasslands, the laundry rooms, and open wounds he left behind and kept for home. And yet, in all of this, I'm not sure I grew up lacking anything that was to be known <laughs> because my grandfather knew a little something or a lot about everything. Or if he didn't, he knew how to laugh it off or change the question with a long, mind-bending story or parable. Put him on there deep so the chub will want him, he would say. And you could have heard a twig drop in Burr Crow's tree, he would add knowing I was looking on the ground for the twig. And even more important, he seemed to love giving and showing 
the power that came from telling, demonstrating cool to silver hair under a tree. This is where the asparagus bears seeds that strengthen the roots that sleep all winter under the ground, he pointed in spring. Chinkapins, he touched branches, the little Cherokee brother of the chestnut, whose leaves are good for a chill and fever. We used to string them together at Christmas when Mother let us. They grow mostly in short, clumpy bushes way back in the woods. Down by the old sawmill seat, that's where you can find them. His mind was always going. Over there, he said, on the dirt road where you and your mama live, your daddy got the only Asian pear tree in the whole county. In church, like the Asian pear tree, he also towered, more so than any other family member. Yes, my mother's people were there as large landholders like my grandmother's father, Claiborne, but there was something my grandfather had that maybe others didn't. It was not money, or hundreds of acres of land with ponds for baptism and fishing. In fact, my mother's people may have known it too. Knowing him as well as any, they still preferred to call him Mr. or Deacon, and there was something else that swirled about him that maybe only a few others had. Almost no one in church. They loved his prayers, his opinions, his Sunday school classes, and hurried to be up front where the bootlegger had slipped into the back, where the man with the eighth grade education and whose young unwed mother likely couldn't read and whose grandmother had been a slave knew nearly every passage in the Bible and who also was a welcome face in any store in town, with only a few fives and tens in his pocket. Morning, Uncle Willie, the German grocer would say. But there was a word he would say to me that often popped into my head even when I wasn't thinking. Pharisee. Pharisee. What in the world was a Pharisee, I thought sitting in one of my first teacher's classes. He would have told me lying down his glasses on the porch, a little overstudied himself because sometimes the R's and S's were tricky in the dimming light. And still, his eloquence and somewhat limited vocabulary caused me to wonder even deeper. What was the temple like? Were they good or bad? What did papyrus, I slowly eventually learned to say it, feel like? What did it feel like on which they scribbled? Sunday school let out early the day she came. The young woman on the great big bus from Philadelphia. It may have been New Jersey. My grandfather was excited as I and everyone else, if not a little afraid, she would tell us 
to go back home I and mean, clip down our fingernails down off the bus like a young Ella Fitzgerald. Beautiful and black she was, mysterious also as the night after a corn harvest moon under unseen rustling trees. Greetings, ladies and gentlemen, and members of this illustrious diaspora of our Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. Her mouth opened like a whole choir had been sleeping there. The African brooch she wore was silently tipping and nodding. And Mrs. Jet Roan, who was the only teacher we kind of knew in person and who could make the piano dance and shout in only a few pearls, had turned all the way around on her bitch. No sound. Only the Pharisees writing on stone, I thought. We fanned real good and sucked our tongues down our throats. The lime-colored gloves, the wide city hat like Zorro, and beads of tortoise shell, and good-sized, healthy, black-eyed peas they looked like. I don't think most of you will remember me, she said. I don't think most of you will remember me. It's been such a long time. My mother, who lived in town, she breathed in like a swan or flamingo sucking on a straw. My mother took me away from here when I was almost three, and that was some epoch ago, or more precisely, three decades and 300 days and some undetermined hours and precious minutes and seconds. Proverbs 16.16. She waited for us to turn. I have come to love as much as I have, trusting God to show us around the bend and along the pathway home. Everywhere it is, wisdom and knowledge is more precious than silver and gold. And as a professor at the Institute, her teeth gleamed along a far shore. These words have grown ever more glossy, drunk full with gladness, with gratitude and profundity. The women in the pillbox hats were then looking at her as hard as plows, maybe because she had never married. The men's lips twisted up into little mouth-watering clouds. But they also knew and wanted to know. Only God knew the greatest truth. And so the women swished their hands along the folds of their dresses. The men teased to touch their hats slipping slightly off their stiff knees. But Mrs. Lavinia Madrelina Scotts was not kidding. Her voice was reaching a high curl where it rose to the squat ceiling, walked stately under the old lantern candelabra down the aisles, lifted like a silver sandy dust between the waiting pews. As the Aristotelian 
Maudidis alluded in the opposition even unto Egypt and Spain, I give you a fish that you may feed for a day, wishing that knowledge of rivers and sunfish will feed you forever. She paused slightly, leaving the lips parched and open, the air of oceans hungry for rafts and skiffs. Take fast hold of instruction. Let her not go. Keep her, for she is thy life. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an unexpected and glorious end. Then we all completely died, and her words and wisdom may have turned into blocks of gold, caskets and inscribed vaults, and chesses where we couldn't look back. She didn't talk long, as the old school preacher who accompanied her in a wheelchair, but the breathing in and afterlife was interminable, infinite, unending, the deep open sejuras, the memorizing and studying and absorbing through the skin to the very marrow of the bone. We gave nearly every penny we had, and I asked Granddaddy for two more quarters because something important had happened. He gave me three whole quarters, and his eyes were full as dollars, not the kind you leave on copper plates, but the kind you are saving up for something. And then the pianist pulling out Sister Albertina Walker on a stormy night or golden shore, cast it all in. Rich on the porch as the sun bowed down and my grandfather could barely see. He put down his glasses and asked, What's that word I told you, Lal? Afraid I would forget and still very shy especially around one of the white boss men neighbors who had just left the yard looking for my daddy. I held my breath and closed one of my eyes, and oops, out it came. I spelt it out just like Miss Lavinia, or at least someone from California. P-H-A-R-I-S- Double E, granddaddy, Pharisee. And then I think, if I didn't know better and wasn't trying to stifle the teensy giggle, my grandfather fell, fell fast asleep, like Eutychus before Paul raised him from the dead. Thank you very much. I like this piece a lot. And I'm very glad I wrote it. Have a nice day.